Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We were having a conversation earlier this week, Sherry, with someone that was vacationing in Tucson. And of course, you know what Tucson made me think of. Javelinas? Yeah, the the wild little pigs. Those things are awesome. Well, sort of, yeah. It made me think of the the only two times you and I have ever been to Tucson, Arizona, was for an industry convention for the work we used to do. And those were just big three-day booze fests. For some of us. Well, yes. Okay, some... I some would say people, most. Some people went to actually learn You're right. from the breakout sessions. You're right. I wanted to get through the mandatory sessions as quickly as possible. And in depending on where we were, it was either to the beach or to the pool. In the case of Tucson, it was to the pool. Wanted mm-hmm. to get to that pool. Because that's where the magic happened. <laughs> that's where we would drink copious amounts of beer and other things. And have these, what I thought at the time were just insightful, solving all the problems of the world kind of conversations. And I did notice back when we used to go to these conventions, and Tucson, that particular resort in Tucson was like one of my favorite places on earth back when I was drinking. It was just set up really well. And you mentioned the javelinas, which are these little wild pigs, and they would run around the property. Like that was part of the charm of the property, having... Which, and when I say it out loud, it doesn't sound it that doesn't, charming. It sounds very <laughs> rural, perhaps. But no, it was so cool just because there were all these different, like, sections of buildings that all connected to these, like, very beautiful paths that were, you know... Um, out in the like wild. Vegetation. Yeah. And, and the, Cactuses. Yeah. 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 And, and we did have a mission one night on the first trip to Tucson to try to catch one of those javelinas and get it in someone's hotel room. That was a late night mission. Probably the the guy who was in charge, right? <laughs> uh, probably. Our, the leader of our... Probably. But when we were having these discussions in the afternoons in the pool, you know, solving all the problems, if not of the world, at least of the industry that we were in, we thought we were so smart. I thought I was so smart. And I think a lot of the people in the pool that were drinking heavily with us did as well. And I noticed thought you were at the smart time, or they were smart. <laughs> thought, thought we were smart, but yes, I thought they thought I was smart too. Yes. But at the time, I, I always noticed that the people that weren't drinking heavily weren't joining us in our end of the pool. And I thought, oh, they're missing out, not on the, the beer, but on the intellectual conversation. They're really missing out on all that we know that they don't. What a bunch of losers. And looking back now, now with four plus years of sobriety, I I realized they weren't at our end of the pool because they didn't need to hear us repeat ourselves over and over again in slobbery, you know, slurred voices. And maybe what we had to say wasn't all that intelligent. It We were just lifting each other up and, and you know, one person would jump on the idea of someone else and, and make it more grand. And then it would just continue to snowball. And if you were sober, that was probably a pretty boring place to be. Mm-hmm. It made me think of those conventions we went to once a year. Like I said, Tucson was the location twice, but they were all over the country. There was a, a convention that was at a different location 
you might remember where I don't. But oh, maybe it was Tucson. I don't know. But the point is, we, you know, we would have these big fun times with all of our industry friends and these big elaborate conversations and drink tons of alcohol. And then when you and I would be alone, you know, probably because you were disgusted by me and the amount I was drinking, the the mood was not nearly as jovial and we would get in these big arguments. And there was a time at one of these conventions, I think it was in like a morning after, when I actually said these words to you, I said something to the effect of, you know, these people that we're hanging out with, they're here to talk to me, Sherry. They're not here to hear from you. What a hurtful, awful, terrible thing to say. First of all, I know now it wasn't true at all. You are charming and engaging and less drunk than I was. So probably the only reason I had any friends at those conventions was because they were people that were enjoying spending time with you that were tolerating me. But the fact that I actually said that, I mean, what did that feel like? And do you remember which property we were at, what town we were in? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I had a feeling you would. Where were we? We were in Tucson. It was the second time that we went because we also had this big fight that night because we got in early. Um, it was before for this the official before the official stuff started. Yeah, yeah. So we got in um, early because the property was going to give us this discounted price, and it was beautiful. And we were going on this arduous, dry desert hike, and we were in Tucson in April. So that's like being you know in normal parts of the country in like July. Yeah, it was already pretty it was hot, beautiful, but it was ninety. Yeah, nineties, and so we were really dehydrated. And really tired, so I do. That's why I remember it was in Tucson. But, um, yeah, it just, it just kind of fueled my the notion that I thought you were a narcissist and that you thought you were the most charming and smart person in the, you know, planet Earth, and and that no, and it was also, you know, it was really demeaning. Like, oh, because nobody would want to talk to me. Nobody would care what I say. You know, because you have all the answers. You have, and you know, a lot of time the conversations that I were having, I was having with people, weren't even necessarily related to our industry. It was like a personal connection and finding out what was going on with their family and their kids. So, and I knew that I had a lot of people that liked me. So, you know, people that we just saw that once a year and hung out with. So once a year, but the same people every year. But the so same, you can, pe- yeah. even though it's only a few days a year, you can still develop. Yeah. Strong relationships over time with these Yeah, people. and we had like a, you know, there was a um, some connection. There would be, you know, people coming in and out of other people's towns and stopping by their bakeries. But I just, you know, I thought, God, what, you know, what an asshole. Like, you think that nobody likes me and you think that it was hurtful and I knew it was a lie. But I just thought, well, that's how you feel about me. That I'm not good enough for these people, and I certainly translate that I'm not good enough for you, because you're just carrying it. You know, you're just carrying me along. I can't imagine what it would be like to be with someone with an ego like that. And not only an ego like that, but an abusive willingness to express an ego like that. And I'm eternally sorry for that, and I... I know now that there was not an ounce of truth to it, as I said a minute ago. You know, I, I, I can 
I can almost picture the looks on people's faces when they would see us. And I realize now that the glow that they had was for reconnecting with you and not, not at all for seeing me. Probably they were thinking, oh, to, to enjoy our time with Sherry, we've got to put up with Matt. Well, I don't now, think that was necessarily yep. the case. I well, think there were that plenty were. of big drinkers there yeah. that drank at my pace. So maybe those people <laughs> looked forward to having an excuse to drink no holds you were barred very, like I did. You were very funny and charming, and you definitely had a lot of levity and goofiness. That, and you would always pull some sort of antic, like you were always the person that had some crazy thing to you know add at the end of the night. You know, the guy that just is just going a little too far, and how far are you going to follow along? Like but, trying to get a javelina in somebody's <laughs> hotel room. Yeah. Which would have been thousands of dollars of damage had we done it. So I'm I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we failed. But but no no you're right. Okay. I don't want to overdo looking, it. But yeah. the point is, the point is I had a huge ego, an alcohol fueled ego. You know I I was proud of myself whether I was sober or drinking. But when I was drinking, it would just kind of take over, and the arrogance w- would just elevate to a point where it was the predominant characteristic, especially when I was spending time alone with you. Yeah. And I just can't, I mean, I appreciate you sharing how that felt. I I can't imagine how painful that would be. I think it's a big, big deal. And here's the thing that we've learned, you know, through our mission and the, the work that we're doing in this area, that was nothing even close to unique to me, that big ego and arrogance in alcoholism it it's it's extremely common there are a variety of reasons why people become alcoholics the the most popular and well known i think is or a couple of the most popular and well known is that it's a family cycle that everyone in my family is an alcoholic so i'm i'm an alcoholic too that happens quite frequently also, the topic of, of childhood or early adult trauma, whether it's child abuse, molestation, neglect, any of those really traumatic, awful things that can happen in our childhood often causes people, as soon as they consume alcohol for the first time, they realize, whoa, that makes all the pain go away. I didn't know that could happen. And so then they become hooked to the feeling of pain relief that alcohol provides and alcoholism is the result. So those two things, I think, you know, eight out of 10 people could could identify that those are causes of alcoholism. The lesser known cause that I think is a big part of my story, but as I'm learning, it's a big part of a lot of people's story, is this, this drive to achieve, this, um, this need for external validation that I certainly felt. I didn't feel it in college so much. I mean, in college, I was scraping by with a B average and partying all the time. And I I didn't, I, I mean, I guess I did get my validation from the party itself, from the people that I was partying with. But I didn't, obviously, I didn't think, you know, I needed A's on all my classes to to get any kind of validation. But something shifted in adulthood. And I started to really feel this need for career success. And to be the best person doing the job that I was doing and to get, 
you know, pretty constant, pretty regular raises and promotions and accolades from my bosses, which meant transfers and moves around the country. And I, I remember having one conversation with you about a move that I had been offered, and you were you you weren't against it by any means. We were in a car in Chicago. I remember I remember it was a strong enough emotional, you know toll on me that I remember where we were sitting, which is rare for me. But you were not immediately elated like I was. And, you know, I think it was that reality was setting in for you that we're going to have to move again and that we were establishing a life. And every time we moved every two or three years, it meant budding little friendships being cut off. And so, again, you weren't against it and we made the move and everything was great. But for just an inkling of a moment, you were you had hesitation, and that crushed me because I, at that time, I got so much self confidence and pride and self esteem from external accolades, and so the idea that this was a promotion for me was all that mattered. Your well being, friendships, whether or not you liked the town we were in that we were going to have to leave, none of that mattered to me. Do you remember that conversation by chance? I was just trying to figure out where it was. So it must have been when we were in Chicago, yeah. moving back moving to back the to Twin Minnesota. Cities. Yeah. Right. And I had just, yeah, because I had established a pretty good job that I felt like was yeah pretty steady. And I had gotten a lot of responsibilities of of going to other branches throughout the... Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because bigger, yeah. there we are and, and our, our the trajectory of our life is driven by my career which means constantly uprooting your career and that was not even on the radar for me. So so all of my self-esteem comes from this thing that I don't even give you a second to to have a pause about. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like my career is everything, your career is nothing again. Arrogance, ego. All all of that was yeah. was And that out. we were proximately like Proximity made us a good location with the two airports. Flights were cheap. We were close to our families and friends that still were in Indiana. So yeah, I think it was probably just that. Yeah, for, that's that's a great point. For you, it wasn't all career. <coughs> there were a lot of factors, but there were factors that made the move that I was proposing um, difficult, a difficult decision. Or, or even if you knew it was kind of a foregone conclusion... It, it was a tough pill to swallow at the very least. Mm-hmm. But this this notion of as a high-functioning alcoholic, getting all of my my motivation from external validation from career, it was mostly from career, um, but it was also, you know, I needed friends to like me. I needed to go to the, these conventions and have people care to hear what I had to say. Everything was external. And that's, that puts a ton of pressure and stress because it turns out that's not the way the world works. The world goes up and down. Careers go up and down. You know, I was dealing with customers. I was in sales and marketing. And, you know, sometimes you have good things happen with customers and sometimes you have bad things happen with customers. And I would medicate the bad with alcohol. So I had alcohol in my life for social drinking purposes for relaxation purposes, but I also had it for stress management and disappointment management. And there are a ton of people out there that haven't had childhood trauma and grew up in a stable home and have, you know, families of their own that are that are good and healthy 
and they've had all kinds of career success. But all career success does is breed the need for more career success. It's you know you hear these stories of super rich people that are miserable, and they're you know they've got all the money in the world, but they still want more. That's what happens when we tie our validation to external factors. There's just never enough. And how many things in our life can you say that when I was drinking, there was never enough of? There, there was never enough booze. There was never enough career satisfaction. There was never enough sex. You know, it, it's, it's like it's when you're trying to fill this void of self-esteem with an external. It, it just doesn't work. It evaporates before it fills the void, and you've just got to go get more and more and more. So that's where the ego, I think, comes from, at least in part. You know, it also comes from you're a drunk fool, and you think more of yourself than you should. But this driving factor for external success being a requirement for any kind of self-esteem and the need to medicate that when things don't go well, that's a super common reason for alcoholism that I think a lot of people don't know about. Hmm. Sorry, I'm just blabbering at you. It's okay. No. Do you agree? Anything Um, there that I said that you disagree with or? No, I don't disagree with any of that. I'm just not aware of that because I, you know, I'm not in that place. Like, and I wasn't blessed to not be. And I wasn't like super career driven. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know like I didn't have a long stint of a career, but the, the bank that I worked for in Chicago was, would have probably taken me a lot of places had we stayed there. Yeah. And they were looking to branch out into other areas and the Twin City is one. And he, the owner, you know, approached me when he found out we were moving and said, can I call on you if we ever get to that point of branching out? So, yeah. um, you know, so I guess. But I never, I never felt that like drive the way you did. But I think maybe it was because I didn't have a. My parents were not professionals, were not college educated professionals, and and I know that you had pressure, kind of, societal and within your family of like you're going to go to college, you're going to get a job, you're not going to move back home. You know that was an expectation. I maybe shouldn't say pressure, but an expectation. No, it, it, it okay. It was an expectation that created pressure. There's yeah. no doubt. So there's no doubt that I felt. From, again, both society and family, you're right, this Mm -hmm. pressure to succeed. My father had been very career successful, and I needed, needed for my own validation to be very career successful. And just being male, like, whereas, you know, females, they can, oh, you don't have to have a, a career. So, yeah. Well, okay, I think there's two pieces to the gender part from what we've learned from all the, the people that we work with. Um, yes, you know, could I subject ourselves to criticism for saying this? Absolutely. But in our generation, we're in our late 40s now. It is still a generation where there's a lot of pressure on the male to perform career-wise and less pressure on the female. You and I are strong supporters and believers in the need for equity and equal opportunity and equal pay and all of that. So this is not a sexist comment, but it's the reality. When we run a program called Shout Sobriety for, for alcoholics in early sobriety, and when I have the initial telephone conversations with people that are seeking, you know, that want to join the group and are looking for help, 
if it's a man, we're going to spend half that call talking about the career influences and how they affected that person's alcoholism. And if it's a woman, we're going to talk about the family influences and, you know, the stresses of motherhood or, you know, again, childhood trauma, balancing, dealing with their marriage. It's just a foregone conclusion. And it's not like I lead the conversation that way. That's, that's just how it is. Yeah. So there's that gender aspect. There's also, there's just, there's a mothering instinct. There's a, there's a caringness among women that doesn't just naturally exist in men. And, and again, I'm sure I'll be criticized by some who will call that a sexist statement. But when you see it over and over again in 100% of the cases that you deal with, boy, there's something, you know, genetic or, um, you know, there's, there's a gender piece to it. The, and, and it's certainly true in our relationship, the driving force behind decisions that you make and emotions that you feel and satisfaction that you feel has always been our, is from the day our first child was born, you know, to present time and well into the future has always been, how's it going to impact the kids? Um, how are the kids doing? You know, when I get down and depressed now, it's still career related. Even though I know that I can't look for external validation and I've learned so much and things have gotten so much better. But it's still, the things that drag me down are if something isn't going well, some project I'm working on. And the things that drag you down is if one of the kids is having trouble with something. Yeah. And, you know, that's not limited. That's not a Matt and Sherry issue. That is a very, very common issue. And so gender does play a role. But so so as an active alcoholic, I had this huge ego, very arrogant, and the the need for external validation is what drove both the ego and also what drove my need to medicate and you know especially once we started when we started owning our own business the the work stress got much bigger but so did the disappointments i mean if you work for a big company and sales overall for the big company are slumped it's really easy to blame the economy and the people you work with and whatever 10 other factors, right? When you own your own business and sales are down, you know, it's the old saying, the buck stops here, right? There's no one to blame but yourself. Mm-hmm. You've created this mess and you've got to find a way out of it. And it's a ton of stress. So I'm thankful that we went into small business because it sped up my progression into alcoholism. There's absolutely no question in my mind. I would have gotten to the same finish line. I just would have done it over a longer period of time. And so I wouldn't be healthy at this, you know, like I said, late 40s, got half my life left to live. (laughs) So I want to live significantly longer than Sherry does, which is, well, that's a story for another podcast. But anyway. No, I don't think anybody cares. Nobody cares. You're right. Nobody cares. But so I'm glad for that stress, but it, it drove me into alcoholism and it got me to the point where we are now where we're on the road to health. Well, just, I kind of laugh when you said that. It made me think about, you know, the bakery and how it drove you to that, um, that stress drove you quicker. I remember you being just so stressed that you wanted to be in a certain position with, when we didn't own the bakery, 
you wanted to be in a certain position by the time you were, basically you wanted to be a middle manager by the time you were 30. So then that way you'd be absolutely catapulted into being like, you know, CEO or something of a, of a company, you know, by 50. I wanted to be retired at 50. Yeah. I wanted to make couple million dollars and be retired by 50. That was my original. And I didn't care if I had to work 80 hours a week. Yeah, but I just remember the... You know how like, unhealthy that is to yeah to follow that path? Yeah. It, it didn't happen. It nothing, didn't happen. Nothing close to well, that. Well, what happened was you you didn't get your middle management position until you were like 31 or 30 and a half or something. Because I remember your 31st birthday party, I think, is what... I think you're off years-wise by a little. But, okay. But... You, the two things that happened were it didn't go as planned and we had kids and I kind of changed that plan. Yeah. Which you've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. But yeah. But you're, when, you were when like, you've got this, this unreachable goal, you got to hit the milestones and you can't miss any of them. Yeah. Oh, and if you do miss one, just drink a lot because it'll make it much better. <laughs> and then just quit the whole like working for somebody else and, and then business give it yourself. All Throw in the towel. Yeah. Well, well, working that way. It takes like years off your life and and so you can't stick to that plan anyway enough about that let's talk about what happens in early sobriety that ego gets deflated in a hurry because you have lost your medication your alcohol medication to deal with the downs you know of the ups and downs cycle and but you still only know external validation you have no ability to as as the phrase you know that is commonly said is to to fill your own bucket you have no way to do that so if you happen to be married as i was and you're in early sobriety and you're dealing with the ups and downs without your medication you often end up as a sobbing puddle just uh inconsolably sad and everyone knows that alcoholics in early sobriety have to deal with emotions for the first time. But I, I think as someone who who tied all of my self-esteem to achievement, to career achievement, who then went into you know early sobriety and would have to deal with this, the ups and downs, um, I think the emotion that I was most impacted by not having my medication for was, you know, the emotions were things like fear and doubt and, you know, disappointment. These things that are just cyclical. I mean, they happen, man. It's not all rosy every day. And because I had never learned to to deal with the ups and downs of my career stuff, um, when the down would happen, I mean, it would just crush me. And I would be a moody, sobbing puddle. And the thing I would most look for when that would happen was consoling from you. If I didn't have my alcohol to make it go away, I needed you to fill my bucket. Do you remember that? Do you remember those days of me moping around and, you know, I would probably say something derogatory about myself, hoping that you would say, oh, no, Matt, you're not that bad. You're great. (laughs) It's like the... Girls, do these jeans make me look fat? Just so they can get a compliment. Right. I do kind of remember that, but I also feel like the last few years of your active alcoholism, like the arguments and the fights had kind of stopped and I had just like kind of, you had, be, because it hit you in a way of depression. In, 
right. you know. So you had already been an emotional up and down roller coaster sobby sort of mess and then you went into your when I was still drinking when you were still drinking good point and then you went into the sobriety part and I was done because I had you'd done six months of sobriety nine months of sobriety lots of other attempts so I was also like disinterested in hearing what was going on and and I remember like whenever you say fill my bucket I kind of like want to throw up in my mouth I hate that phrase because you used it quite a bit in the beginning of like, oh, we need to repair our relationship and, you know, we need to fill each other's bucket and I need this. And, and I remember one of our friends who's um, a therapist said in an email, you don't have other people fill your bucket. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, don't go and just be mean to people. But I thought it was kind of nice because I was like, there's nothing that I can do right now. And I knew there was nothing I could do right now. And I didn't have any... I, I would be so fake and sarcastic if I were to come and stroke your ego when you were moping around. And I could only listen to about maybe 10 minutes of you like telling me why you were sad. Because I thought, oh God, you know, I have wasted so much time on him. So much time listening to this shit for years that I just don't have it anymore. I was very unsympathetic. Okay, so there's two really important things there that I've got to respond to. At least two. There's probably more, but I can only remember two <laughs> things at a time. So one is when you talked about how I, oh my God, you just brought like a flashback of big memories. When I would come to you and say, okay, Sherry, I figured out the key to our relationship. We need to fill each other's buckets. I would constantly come to you with some, you know, harebrained idea for how yeah. we were going to fix the relationship. And I always... The fix that I would present to you was always meant to fix you and to fix me. In my mind, it was more to fix you because I thought you were more broken than I was. But in reality, now that I know what I know, I was the only one. Well, okay. I, I was the one that needed the most of the fixing back then. And so I would present this thing to you. Oh, we need to fill each other's buckets. And I'm sure you were thinking, you know, my bucket's pretty full. I'm kind of okay over here. I don't and, need you in my and, bucket. And, <laughs> get out of my bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I know I need my bucket filled, but I'm thinking, oh, we both clearly, this is a mutual 100% even, if anything, Sherry's more broken than me. So we both need this solution that I've come up with, this grand solution that I've created, um, when really you just needed me to leave you alone and uh, I needed to figure out a way to fill my own damn bucket. Yeah. I think well, I think it's because, you know, I had the emotional connection with people because I hadn't like totally you know lost that with people because I hadn't been drinking and I had I had a few people that were really close and good to me but I also had the kids and I still you know had my parents and and you didn't look for external validation yeah. for your self-esteem you had you had nice loving warm family things that were filling up your yeah your self-esteem yeah filling it was up your pretty bucket. full you were pretty full and full. You were, and you were overflowing with me. You didn't need any more me. You're just going to get all the water sloshed out of the bucket. So that so that was one of the two really interesting points of what you just said. Um, and the other one I forgot. I can't oh. apparently remember two things anymore. That was the, that was I think the most important. Oh no, I know what the other the other one is. So you kind of alluded to the fact that you were done with me. You were done with. My arrogance and my ego, you were done with my moping around, like you said, toward the end of my act of alcoholism. It didn't take sobriety for me to start moping. I was already super <laughs> depressed in active alcoholism at the end. 
Um, but then that carried over to early sobriety. And so it's, I just think it's fascinating what alcohol does. Like we think alcohol is this glorified thing that's necessary in everyone's life. We just met someone this last week who talked about how her family um, was not drinkers, but her husband's was. And when she first met him, she thought it was so elegant that they would have cocktails before dinner Mm -hmm. and then a nice fancy wine with dinner. And it's just so elegant and, you know, intellectual and and high society. Kind of sewering. Yeah. uh, Beer and whiskeys. That's the place we elevate alcohol to in our society. There's a Budweiser commercial for the Super Bowl, which I don't understand what they're doing. They're releasing their commercials before the Super Bowl and they're not going to show during the Super Bowl. I I, I haven't gotten into the marketing logic behind it. But anyway, I saw it this week and it's all about, oh, when this is over, you can finally have a beer with your friends again. I bet you can't make a list of your friends that you want to have a Budweiser with when this is all over. I mean, so cheesy, but again, just glorifying beer. Like you couldn't possibly just spend time with your friend without having a beer in each of your hands. And not like you haven't been just binge drinking behind closed doors exactly. during the lockdown the whole time. Anyhow, you sloppy I mean, drunk. Like think about the mental, you know, the mental health. Like Better Help is probably able to advertise just as much as Budweiser now. Yeah, they can afford the, to. Marijuana and that's industry good. in that Colorado has gone thing. up fourteen percent. Yeah. So oh, let's not go there. But yes, you're right. But so we 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 glorify this thing and and the havoc that it causes in relationships, whether addiction is present or not, is just immeasurable. It's awful. It makes me so sad. But so that that's what we've gone through and we're at this stage, either in the end of my active drinking or in my early sobriety, when I most need my needs to be met by you, Sherry, because I've cut myself off. Either alcohol has stopped being effective in meeting my needs, or I've cut myself off from alcohol once I reach sobriety. I still have this, the only way I know how to get my bucket filled is by external validation. And guess what? Ding, ding, ding. You are the number one external validator that I have access to. I most need my needs to be met by you when you are the most disgusted by my very humanity and want the least to do with me. You're not attracted to me. And I'm not even talking about sexually. I'm talking about just relationshiply. You just can't in many at many times stand the sight of me. I've put you through all of this. I've caused all this harm with our family. You don't trust me anymore. There's been lots of you know, denials and deception. We've dragged my family into it and I've tried to turn them on you and convince them that you're the crazy one. All of this stuff has happened. And yet I am like, you know, a wilting puddle begging and clawing at you to tell me that I'm wonderful (laughs) and you are the least attracted to me that you will ever be in your whole life. Boy, that was a dramatic way I painted the picture. But is it accurate? Um, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I'm just overwhelmed by your dramatic recourse of that. So I guess one thing I will also add to that is I looked at it like maybe I have that sort of tough love mentality was like, listen, you made this bed. You lie in, you're lying in it now. Like you, you have to clean up your own mess. You did all this. You had choices, and you chose to continue down this path. So 
I was like hurt and mad and disgusted and annoyed. And I thought, damn right, you need to be suffering through this because this is what you've done. This is the life you've created. Right. I'm creating a little bit of a life outside of you with other people. And I don't, you're not, you haven't filled my bucket for years. So I'm not going to just start filling your bucket now. You know? Your, your bucket, the, the part of your bucket that I filled, that thing was bone dry by this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I did know early on in our marriage and relationship that you always came to me for external validation. Sure. Like the Again, self. I think very common with people that. Are, have this achiever mentality and and need need somebody out there to tell them that they're doing well, and then when they're maybe not, they turn to their wife and say, "Well, you at least tell me I'm doing well." Yeah, but I mean, even just like when we were dating, you know, like you had this desire to like constantly spend like your free time with me, and I was like, I have other people too. I have other people that are my friends that I also want to see, or like right before we were moving. Well, I out was, of state. I was very clingy and jealous. Boy, I painted a hell of a picture for my... <laughs> no kidding. Uh, should I put this on my Match.com <laughs> profile? All of these attributes? <laughs> Maybe you're, you know... I think it's a miracle that I'm married. But I just... I knew, like, right away, though. Like, oh, gosh. He really has... He's missing something. And it was kind of sad. And yeah. I tried, but I also tried to lead by example of, like, have friends outside of me or things like that, you know. And I always thought it was ironic because when we would move, like, you had your work people. And even though you didn't see them, you talked on the phone with them. We may not be in the same state, you know, and you kind of had that with your um, college friends. But I was the one that had to go and find a new job and find a new group of people in the area we were living a little bit to hang out with. So, well, when you talk about that early time, let's be honest about that. I think, I think it's, I think it was that I was, je- I was a very jealous person. So, if I wasn't with you, I wondered where you were and who you were with and what you were doing. I did. Is it logical? Because you're giving me this look like, oh my god. But is it pathetic? Yes, it's pathetic. It's not, pathetic. Not logical. Pathetic. Yeah, I was gonna say, is it logical? No. Is it pathetic? Yes. And the other thing is, I had lots of friends in college, but. They didn't have sex with me, so that was the other reason. I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm a okay. horny twenty something, and I liked to spend time with you. <clears throat> but, but yeah, you're right. Um, I, I have a long history of looking for those external validation points. But the the point I really want to just drive home is, you know, whether whether it was as dramatic a picture as I painted or. You did, toward the end of my drinking, get really good at detachment. You weren't always good at it, but you did. I mean, you would engage, and we'd have these brutal fights, and it was awful, and stay up all night arguing, and then be mad at each other for days. Toward the end, you got pretty good at detachment, and so you carried that into early sobriety, and for sure, there were times where you just wanted me to suffer because I deserved to suffer. So whether it's that, you know, or just you were just disgusted by my very existence, which I think to some extent was true also. At the time when I most needed your external validation, you to clean up my slobbering mess for me, 
that's the time when you are the least able or willing to give it. And so that's just the diabolical nature of alcohol and alcoholism. I mean, there are so many, so many things about it that are either counterintuitive or um, they're just the opposite of how we wish they would be. Mm-hmm. So the like, drinking... Like, for instance, when I would get depressed and I would drink to soothe the depression, I didn't understand that the alcohol was what was creating the depression to begin with. I didn't understand the cycle I was in. So then later in our relationship, when I'm doing all these things to make me less attractive to you, I'm also at that time most needing you to tell me how attractive I am to you. Like it just, it, you know, it, if if you're turning right, I'm turning left. Like it makes no sense. And so that's why, this is one of the main reasons why it happened to us and it happens to so many people that, you know, the, the alcohol leaves the relationship and sobriety starts and the relationship just goes like a rock sinking downhill. Like it's it gets worse and worse and worse in sobriety. And I think this is a, a driving reason for it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I cut you off a minute ago. Dude. That's okay. You kind of said what I was going to say. Was oh, that, sorry. you know, the the evolution of the drinking only creates the detachment of the partner and the sure. disgustingness of the partner and then when that person who's the drinker needs the most support, they have damaged that relationship. And it's, I mean, it takes a big person if they're the partner and they're able to give that kind of support and soothing that their partner needs while they're going through early sobriety. But most of the time the relationship is pretty wrecked. You know, and it takes a big person. I also think it's dangerous. I think that detachment, once you learn that skill, it, my humble suggestion would be to stick to it if your instincts are telling you you know that you're hurt by this person that was the drinker um i don't think you should lower yourself to becoming their external validator i mean i think it's a hard it's like one of these tough love lessons that we as the drinkers even as painful as early sobriety is we need to find a way to fill our own bucket Mm -hmm. and so for someone that is in the position you are in and has been hurt for so many years and has finally figured out how to detach, I don't think you should go back on that plan. I guess I was also thinking of someone who had been seeking counsel and therapy and working on themselves even while their partner was actively drinking and then maybe they were at a place where they could have some sort of sympathy and skill set to help that person who's drinking, you know, through that tough time. I'm not saying that I was awful to you all the time. Yeah, I mean, you didn't stand over me and kick dirt on me. I'm not saying it's... <laughs> when you're not, slobbing And I'm not suggesting it. it needs to be that. But I also think there has to be this transition where we as the drinkers learn to remove the need for external validation and fill our own buckets. These are all very therapist terms I'm using, therapy-ish terms I'm using. I think that the fill your bucket is a kid's book. Okay, we'll stop saying that because <laughs> okay. I can. it's making a... F- a look come on your face every time I say it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a lesson that's got to be learned. For us as the alcoholic, we've, we've, and it's, it's a painful period that we have that's, to go through. Well, and that's probably why so many people relapse, right? Because they just can't. For those of us that, that need point. this external validation, I think it's the biggest reason we relapse. Because this emotion, I've talked to so many people that, you know, and it was this way for me too. I didn't relapse because 
of like sudden emergency triggers. I didn't relapse because, you know, I drove by a liquor store and my car just veered into the parking lot. That happens. There are people that relapse for those reasons. And I think it's my belief that those are more the cases of people that have dealt with serious, real, um, difficult trauma. And if something triggers that trauma response, boom, the car's in the Mm. parking lot and they're drinking vodka out of a paper bag. Mm -hmm. I think that's what happens there. In my case, my relapses were well thought out and well planned out. I just decided I was still depressed. Nothing was getting better and I was just going to drink and do my best to, to do a better job of controlling it. So absolutely, I think when we get to this stage where uh, the, there's no external validation and we feel like crap, then we make a conscious decision to start drinking again because um, that's the only way out we can think of. And the real way out is time. It's just time and patience and learning to sit with the pain. Hmm. And knowing, you know, we have to have confidence in the fact that these are cyclical things. These are ebbs and flows and that, that the depression that has come over me will go away and, you know, it, it'll get better. I'm not in any way suggesting that if someone needs clinical help for depression, they shouldn't seek it. I think therapy is great for anybody. And I think anyone who's dealing with depression, whether it's alcohol-induced or otherwise, should find someone to talk to about that and seek professional treatment. But, but what, I am saying, what I am saying is if you have traditionally, you know, been one of these people that gets all of your self-worth from career success or some other external success and you're in a valley instead of a peak, sometimes you just got to figure out how to ride out that valley and have confidence that it's going to come back the other side. Humans are looking for balance. And that's very true when it comes to brain chemistry. I mean, what we've learned about how our pleasure neurotransmitters work is that for those of us that become addicted to alcohol, alcohol stimulates a lot of pleasure neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And our brain is dedicated to finding equilibrium. And when when we drink constantly or at least consistently then every time we drink we get this flood of dopamine our brain learns you know what i'm giving this guy too much dopamine so i'm only going to give it to him when he drinks i'm not going to give it to him for the other pleasurable things in life and that in a very simplistic way is how addiction works we get to the point where we only get those jolts of pleasure from drinking so we feel like we've got to drink all the time because Nobody wants to go through life without those jolts of pleasure. So that desire for equilibrium is very evident in how our brains work, but that's how our whole bodies work, our our biology, our physiology. We're always looking for equilibrium. Too many highs or too many lows send, send up red flags and get us into danger zones. And so... When we, when we fluctuate because of alcohol between these super high highs, these kind of manic highs of, of feeling good and big ego and excited to be with all these people that want to hear what we have to say, and, and it's just this you know pleasure hot zone, and then we, we suffer these depressions 
depressive episodes where it's the exact opposite of that, where these sobbing puddles and, you know, we can't find anything internally to soothe ourselves and we're just begging for something external, whether it's booze or sex or, or someone's accolades to bring us out of the hole we're in. Those swings are just too wild. They're not what we're made for. Humans are made for balance. And so in injecting something artificial to create these huge swings of ups and downs is really, really bad for us. And I, you know, I guess I, I want to bring this full circle to say that I believe our relationships are the same way, Sherry. You know, our relationships need to thrive in balance. And the manic, the manic up and the manic down is, is just really unattractive to our partner. You know, uh, I'll use this common phrase when we talk about alcohol, the life of the party. Being married to the life of the party, that gets old, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, at first maybe you think it's cute that, that this person is is witty and you know drinks as much or more than everybody else. But eventually having this, this person that rides these highs and has to be the center of attention and then is going to go sulk in the basement and drink just ridiculous amounts by himself. I mean, that's got to be a really ugly experience to live through. Whereas if you just had someone that was even keel, the, um, the attraction might be stronger. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think you're right that, you know, the life of the party is, it becomes unattractive because of the, for me, it becomes unattract. It became unattractive because your desire to have this external accolades and and have to kind of show off and make sure that everybody thought you were funny and that you were inventive and creative, um, that you were always the loudest person in the room, so you, you could be heard. That became a big a big turnoff, and it. And it became a big, you know, it, it just inflated your own ego every time someone would laugh. So then it got to the point where you could say to me that time in Tucson, no one's here to talk to you. Yeah. They only want to hear what I have to say. Yeah. And I think what had happened was I had interjected and derailed the conversation you were having. So that's why I think you said that to me um, at that point back you know, years ago in Tucson. I'm just going to go ahead and think that I said that to you because I was an arrogant prick. I'm going to go ahead and lock that into my... Well, that that too, because only an arrogant prick would thank that and, and, that and say that. That was awful. But I think that's what the triggered that comment. Right. Was that, you know, I had stolen some of your limelight. Yeah. So whenever, and that was part of it too, whenever I wasn't either A, playing along with you, or B, if it started to look like I was getting too much attention, I was like competitive. Yeah. I mean, because you would often drag me into some of these funny escapades. And, you know, I, I could never win. Either I was too much into it, I wasn't enough into it. You know, there was no winning. Yeah, satisfying an active alcoholic is threading a, a needle in an impossible way. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And then just then thinking... And then I just remember on some of those vacations... The downside, or these, um, not vacations. Conventions. Uh, conventions. The downside. The, like, 
the lack of not wanting to get back to reality. Oh, my life sucks. Oh, at and the I end was when like, we were coming home. Yeah. Oh, that was awful. <clears throat> and I thought, Toward okay, you piece of shit, your life sucks. Then I remember one time when our friends were in the car, and I was like, fine, get out, live here, stay here. Yeah. I mean, I was totally sober. You hadn't been like. It's not like we'd been arguing. You were just so mopey and depressed. And I was like, if your life sucks so bad that you don't want to get on this plane and come home, yeah, go, then stay here. Going home to our kids. Yeah. Going yeah. home to the our house. The life that, that you wanted. Yeah. You know, you wanted to do these things. Yeah. So, yeah, I had no time for that. And then, like, the mopiness. Like, how can you be so happy for all these other people? And be so, you know, try to like, and you would just lie to people like, oh, this is a great day. And then really it would be a really sucky day, you know. And we had to be the one that watched it happen. Yeah. You had to be the one that watched it happen to me. Yeah. And, you know, just a wasted time. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think you did a great job navigating it and I think it's. The, the credit for the fact that we're still together because we know how many relationships, especially once the alcoholism goes into the sobriety, how many of the relationships end tragically. Uh, I, I think the credit for the fact that we are making it goes very, very largely to you for the way you navigated the slobbering puddle part, the way you... You know, you had a combination of thinking I deserved it, and so you didn't have a lot of empathy, but you did have some empathy, and you did have some concern for me. And it's such, I mean, there's no, like, there's no way to describe exactly how to do it. It's, I'm sure it's a case-by-case thing. But for the drinkers out there that are going through sobriety, I, I hope that they hear me saying, you cannot expect the amount of support that you feel like you need to come from another human being it it's just not going to work it's not available because that person's suffering and healing as well and also you need to learn how to sorry fill your own bucket <laughs> and it's a it's it's a vital critical critical lesson yeah cuz life is ups and downs and how you manage those sober and in early sobriety is going to give you the tools that you need to move forward with being a human and being an adult in a way. Like, it's it's hard. Being in pain is hard. Have, being sad is hard. I relapsed last week, Sherry. You did not. Not drinking relapsed. <laughs> but I relapsed back to the external validation. Here's what happened. We released our book, Sober Evolution, which if you have not yet checked it out, we recommend that you do. It's great. Why are you laughing? You're laughing at my plug? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we released our book September 23rd. And the the bloom was off the rose, if you will, at the beginning of this year. Meaning, you know, you get an initial bump from, from sales, from, you know, the promotions yeah. that you do. And so I realized, okay, been flat. we need to get this thing selling again so I needed to figure out how to use Amazon advertising and it's really complicated mm. um, but so so I started to figure it out and I spent a lot of hours trying to figure out 
their algorithm and and you know all all the different settings and, and to make it work because you can waste a lot of money if you if you don't do the learning do the figuring out right and so uh, I got it all I got the advertising campaign set the way I think I needed it to and all of a sudden we were selling a, a good number of books again and I started feeling really good about that and then we had like two days in a row where the sales were terrible and it crushed me and I was really sad and mopey about that and I realized oh my god I can't do this again I can't let my emotions and my moods be tied to things like money or power or fame or any of those awful things that are all external and have nothing to do with, you know, the good of the person or or how good their heart is or whatever, how great their life is because they've got a healthy, lovely family. Um, But I did it again. I had a little relapse where I let myself get this kind of manic high from, oh, I figured out the algorithm and look at our sales. And then a couple of bad days and I was crushed by it. And I have, you know, that was a quick, quicker recovery than, you know, any of the others that I've experienced in my life. I bounced back from that and I haven't actually looked at our sales in a week and I'm glad that I haven't looked. Um, so I, I just mentioned that because even even as we're getting healthier and making progress and things are going well, it's still so easy to, if, if you're the kind of alcoholic that I am, it's so easy to slide back into that need for externals. And so that uh, awareness of that is just going to, that's going to be with me for a long time, maybe forever. Keep well, and it's very important. Yeah, and it's very hard in the society that we live in, sure. in the secular world that we are in, that, those are how you are proving your worth. Yep. Comparing yourself to others. Making, sh- you know, comparing your house or your cars to others, your income to others. It's not It's not an easy thing you're trying to do. You're right. And it's easy to get sucked into that mentality. Well, I'm glad for this conversation. We're going to have to wrap it up here, though, because i got to go scroll some Instagram and <laughs> see the pictures of other people on vacation so I can feel bad about myself now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You and your big social media. I hate social media. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram, <laughs> though. At Sober and Unashamed. That's our our handle. Um, well, thanks for having this conversation, Sherry, and being so honest about dealing with my arrogance and my, you know, the, the crash from the arrogance, the sobbing puddle. Yeah, you're welcome. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.